0: Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's show, we are pleased to have with us Dr. Don Carlton, who is executive director of the Briscoe Center for American History and the J.R. Parton Chair in the Archives of American History at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of 11 books, including Red Scare, A Breed So Rare, and Conversations with Cronkite. He is also the executive producer of two PBS documentaries, When I Rise and Cactus Jack, Lone Star on Capitol Hill. Uh, And today we're gonna be talking about his brand new book, Struggle for Justice, Four Decades of Civil Rights Photography. Uh, which is really uh, a brilliant foray into not just the photos of the period, but he looks at a cast of Black and white photographers uh, who who really were an indelible part of shaping the civil rights movement, uh, and no less than an authority such as Martin Luther King Jr. said as much. Uh, So Don Carlton, uh, welcome, uh, my friend, to Race and
1: Democracy. Peniel, my friend, I am delighted to be here. Let's
0: start with, you know, why struggle for justice right now? It seems like this came out at the perfect time in this year of Black Lives Matter protests, this year of the pandemic, the election, but so much more interest in race and anti-racism, both for our contemporary period. But of course, we always look back to the civil rights era because it's such a, an evocative era of struggles for racial justice. So what inspired you to to do this book?
1: Peniel, I wish I could say that it was planned to the nth degree, but <laughs> but it wasn't. Uh, actually this book was supposed to be published in spring of this year instead of the fall, but we got caught up, the production got caught up. When I say production, I mean the manu- literally the manufacturing was caught up in the COVID crisis, but it's really, the book has its roots back in 2015, five years ago, when we were called upon to deal with the Confederate statues on the campus of the University of Texas at Austin. And that uh, got us deeply involved in that whole issue of the symbolism, uh, symbols that were used uh, for racial reasons, including statues. And, you know, as we were dealing with that, we ultimately, of course, as you know, became the custodians, the keepers of those Confederate statues. And we have uh, one of them on display in in the center as an educational exhibit. But this book that we're talking about now, Struggle for Justice, literally comes from that experience. The other thing, there's another thing involved here, and that uh, beyond the Confederate statues, that happened in 2015, and again, in 2017, there are actually two rounds of that, but also the election of uh, Donald Trump to the presidency in 2016, and uh, that was the really the sort of the thing that pushed us forward to go ahead and re- to try to bring attention to a, a massive archive that we have that we have gathered and preserved and made available for teaching and research, uh, the uh, an initiative that we began really 40 years ago. And we decided that the time had come, with the issues re- uh, revolving around uh, everything from Ferguson, which was even earlier, uh, to to again the Confederate statues. Um, this is all before Black Lives Matter, actually, and uh, uh, that we would uh, it was time to bring attention uh, to this incredible resource of material visual resource documenting the earlier struggles. Um, of the 50s and 60s. And the title itself, Struggle for Justice, uh, is a nod toward the, um, you know, it's, it's self-explanatory uh, in some ways, but it's also a nod to the idea that this is a continuing struggle. Uh, this this exhibit that we, we did an exhibit, and then the book is based on the exhibit. But anyway, that's well, how it all came about. Uh,
0: I I want to start with uh, one picture before even delving into um, the photographers. The earliest picture in here, as far as I can tell, is from Roy Aldrich. uh, Yes. And it's um, George Hughes and Shackles with an unidentified unidentified lawman, Sherman, Texas, 1930. Right. And I thought this was really, really powerful. This is uh, 90 years ago. And um, these issues of the criminal justice system, and black people and the George Floyd protests. We see just in this photo um, such a long arc there. And I'm not sure what happened to George Hughes. Um,
1: I, I wish I knew. I, I wish I knew yeah. who. Actually, we don't know uh, who the photographer was. Uh, but we wanted to bring uh, uh, George Hughes's, uh, instead of us just saying the unknown photographer. Uh, We wanted to make sure his George Hughes was identified in this photograph. So that's an unusual photograph in terms of the way the book was put together, because all the other photographs are taken by someone and we we named them. Uh, But we wanted to bring some humanity back to this fellow uh, and and put his name in there. Uh, But we don't know who the photographer was. But sadly, I must say, Roy Aldrich was a Texas Ranger. And uh, that photograph comes from his archive. We have his papers. Uh, and the papers are literally full of images that are pretty horrific, uh, especially photographs of uh, of corpses, dead body, you know, bodies of uh, of, of Mexican Americans along the border of Texas mm. and Mexico. That when he was a ranger, they liked to take photographs of the people they killed. Mm. So this is, uh, but you know, this we put this in there because of I think it should be obvious. You know, we we're, we were trying to. Uh, so sh- show in some small way is that this had, you know, a legacy much earlier than what we're dealing with.
0: I want you to, and have, I want to have a conversation about the preface because you introduced these photographers, R.C. Hickman, um, uh, Charles Moore, uh, Flip Schilke. Uh Those of us who are historians of the civil rights movement really sort of recognize those names, but you, you definitely give more um, more depth and breadth to them as, as really artists and activists in their own rights, because it was so dangerous taking these pictures of violence um, during civil rights demonstrations. So let's talk about, you know, it, it, you know, who are these folks? Why were they so important? Um, and, and why have they sort of been lost to history even as we rely on their photos to understand that history?
1: Well, sadly, you know, we have a huge collection of the archives of um, uh, nearly 70 photographers. And by, by that, I mean, we have the entire archives, which means negatives, you know, contact sheets, prints, even their papers. So we focus on the photographers themselves. Uh, we want to know as much as we can about them. And sadly, uh, if you know, I think this is true of all of us. Uh, We know the photographs, but we don't know who who took them most of the time. Um, And that was especially true back in the days when most of these photographs were published in magazines and newspapers. Uh, You had great photographers like these folks that you just mentioned uh, who were doing wire service photography. Uh, They were freelancing for the magazines and so forth, and often they wouldn't get credit. Uh, they wouldn't be credited on the photograph. So it's not surprising that people, that they've been lost to history. And you're absolutely right. Most of them have been. And again, that's another reason why we've been doing this work, is to bring them back to history. And one of the ways we're doing this is uh, we struggle for justice.
0: And one of the things you show is Charles Moore's printing instructions on this photo of protest in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. And he he writes down on this photo, important to make this a gutsy print that we will uh, still make um, a good copy. Uh, Keep good detail in this area. Uh, Do not let this go gray. And you're seeing these Black uh, nonviolent demonstrators, these peaceful demonstrators, being hit with um, basically water cannons, uh, hoses that are powerful enough to strip the bark off of trees, Yes, uh, they're being brutalized. I thought that was really interesting and that I hadn't seen before. Uh, well, that's why we,
1: yeah, you know, uh, Panel, that's why we collect the entire work of, and st- you know, most museums will collect, you know, five or 10 of the best prints. Of a particular photographer, and uh, that's not what we do. We want their, we want everything, even the stuff that they consider that's not their best, uh, because we look at all these images as being uh, really rich with uh, information and evidence that uh, we can use uh, to study. Uh, they can talk; these photographs can talk to us. Uh, really, um, you know, the way a text does, a diary or a newspaper story or whatever, they can be read. So uh, the photograph you're talking about, or I should say the contact sheet, the, uh, you know, Charles Moore, like a lot of these photographers, was more than just simply a news photographer. He he used his camera as a weapon against racism, and he did that consciously. Uh, And that's true of some of the other photographers who we have in this book. Uh, Charles probably was most famous for... Uh, his work, uh, well, he worked mainly in, in uh, Alabama and Mississippi, and he, he really, before the, before the Birmingham movement, where he, which he documented visually, and some of the best-known iconic photographs of that uh, are his photographs, he also covered the riots in Oxford, Mississippi, at the University of Mississippi, the Ole Miss, when James Meredith uh, uh, attempted to uh, enroll there. Uh, and he took a photograph that has become famous. And it was a photograph of some uh, Mississippi sheriffs standing around. And one of them has a, a uh, club in his hands and he's holding it like a baseball bat. And all the other sheriffs are standing around laughing. And, yeah, that uh, is a powerful image. And there's a book uh, that was written entirely about that photograph called Sons of Mississippi that you're probably familiar with, written by Paul Hendrickson. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, Charles Moore's work is often used uh, really as as evidence uh, in in ways that he really intended it to be used. Uh, The power of photography, as uh, Dr. King would refer to it.
0: Now, in the first part of the book, I thought what was really interesting, um, and it's titled Separate, Unequal is these photos, um, one, the Bruce Roberts photo with the the white only uh, signs at a store, Um, the Carl Iwasaki uh, collection, the Brown sisters um, from Brown versus Board of Education, Um, the R.C. Hickman, the unequal school facilities in Euless, Texas. You know, Don, talk to us about the civil rights movement in Texas, too, because I think one of the great things about this collection is that you get some photos of Texas, because Texas has been really understudied in the civil rights movement.
1: Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh,
0: Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, but really just rural parts, too. But I love this colored city hall building in Italy, Texas. Yes. Um,
1: Who knew? uh, Italy, Texas. I
0: mean, it's remarkable. Uh, Marquee of the segregated Starlight Theater. Yes. um, In Dallas, Texas. And this, I'm a big movie buff, Don. So this was really poignant for me because it says, Southwest finest for colored Americans. You know, that that brings me to tears, you know, to see (laughs) a sign like that. Uh, And, you know, they're praising it because this is just the way it is.
1: Yes, exactly. Oh, absolutely. Well, R.C. Hickman was, uh, I got to know R.C. I got to be very close to R.C. Uh, R.C. had his photographs stored in shoe boxes in his garage in his home in South Oak Cliff, Dallas. Uh, uh, when I found him, uh, he was a, a carpet salesman, uh, uh, actually quite a successful carpet se- salesman. I kind of laugh at that because uh, R.C. was one of these guys who could, you know, sell ice to Eskimos. So he was incredible. And, uh, at any rate, he, he, when he got out of the Army in World War II, he learned photography in the Army, like so many of these guys did, actually. Uh, and he was a native Texan. He went to Dallas. And he, he set up shop uh, with his camera in uh, South Dallas, uh, the dominant uh, area, you know, dominated by African-American residents. And he became the unofficial photographer for the whole black community in Dallas. Uh, so that's, where, that's what he was doing. He did all kinds of commercial work, of course, but he also was a freelancer uh, for black publications and uh, that were mainly published in the North, the Pittsburgh paper, for example, uh, and the NAACP also uh, hired him. Uh, and this were some of these photographs that you're referring to uh, with the schools, for example. Uh, there's another photograph of, you know, uh, of uh, well, also the. Like you said, they asked, let me go back. The NAACP asked him to go and document some of the things that were happening in Texas. Uh, Some of them were for legal purposes, Uh, you know, as evidence of uh, there was no such thing as separate but equal. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the school photograph you're talking about. Um, And, you know, R.C. used to tell me, he said, you know, people thought that was just a set up photograph with all of this. It was a schoolroom in total disarray. Mm-hmm. And he said uh, that was very typical of these country schools that were that were meant for black uh, students, but anyhow, he did this freelance work on the side, and that's where um, that's where these photographs came from. Uh, RC died uh, not a f- not long ago, um, but he was the one of he and I have got to be very close friends, and I miss him a lot actually. Um, Calvin Little is another one. You mentioned Calvin Littlejohn He covered Fort Worth and he was he did in Fort Worth what R. C. Hickman did in Dallas. He was a community photographer for the black community. Um, yeah, the other thing I want to mention about Little John uh, and uh, Hickman. Littlejohn Little John was a little older than Hickman, uh, but they their work, their archives, one of the things I got excited about when I saw their archives was the fact that they spent they had so many images of of ordinary Ah, uh, black citizens uh, living really ordinary lives uh, in their their island communities, uh, their island communities within these cities, uh, and so there's a rich archive of material, of uh, visual material, particularly in R.C.s, of black-owned businesses uh, of of the sort of self-sufficiency that was so common uh, in these black uh, island uh, uh, communities, and you know, in the midst of these big cities. Uh, very much like Harlem, um, and so that it's a great record of showing these folks who were, you know, s- r- the victims of Jim Crow laws and racial segregation, trying to to do, work as hard as they could to lead lead normal lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's no there are no famous people in the pictures. Uh, it's just regular folks, and uh, you know there was folks. Who, I've learned that those kinds of images are not all that common.
0: It's great, Calvin Littlejohn, the picture of Dr. King at Love Field in Dallas, October 22nd, uh, 1959. Really, four years and one month uh, to the day of of, uh, President Kennedy's assassination
1: in Dallas. Right. Um, That that was
0: extraordinary. Um, Tell us about Flip Schulke. This is somebody who um, is very, very well known in certain circles. Uh, there's some great pictures from Shulki here and his relationship with uh, about his relationship with Dr. King as well. Um, you have one from um, the Montgomery County Courthouse uh, with Dr. King and Ralph Abernathy. A very striking image: uh, Dr. King speaking to reporters, and the, the backdrop is um, the American flag. You know, yes. you know, you've got a black black um, protester holding up the American flag. And I thought that was really striking too, because I think in a lot of ways, during the civil rights movement, at least during its heroic period, um, Black protesters and, and their white, white allies tried to, tried to really utilize the flag and weaponize the flag for racial justice in ways that at other points in our history, we see the flag being used for the opposite, right? So exactly. there's this, this idea of sort of the flag and patriotism and sort of the most patriotic thing you can do is be for, you know, racial justice, anti-racism, equal rights, black citizenship and dignity. So tell us about Flip Shoki.
1: Well, the, just uh, related to what you just said, I want to say that, uh, you know, we like to think that photographers just simply go out and they snap a picture. Uh, but uh, Flip Schilke, uh worked as hard as he could to get the American flag in as many images <laughs> as he could for the very purpose that you're talking about. I mean, the very thing you're talking about, Flip consciously uh, did. So you'll, you'll see an amazing, when you go through his collection, you'll see an amazing number of photographs. Whereas Dr. King uh, with the American flag somewhere nearby because uh, he's trying to make that point that you just made. But uh, Flip Shokey was a, a photographer in Miami, Florida, and he met uh, Dr. King back in 1958, uh, actually. And they became friends. And uh, eventually, as the civil rights movement really accelerated, um, he started following Dr. King around. And Dr. King, they became good friends. And Dr. King asked him to be his unofficial photographer Uh, because Dr. King was having trouble uh, uh, having black photographers uh, uh, really documenting his uh, work uh, because the police frequently beat up the black photographers, took their cameras away from them, confiscated their film. Mm. And the white photographers were able, although the white photographers faced some of that themselves, um, it, it wasn't nearly as bad as what the black photographers had to put up with. So You know, as I said earlier, Dr. King believed in the power of photography, and he and 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 uh, Flip Schulke kind of had a pact uh, that they made that uh, that uh, Flip would take all these photographs, and he had all these connections with uh, in the media. He was a magazine photographer, Uh, and so many of the most iconic photographs that you see of Dr. King now, and I know your work with Dr. King, uh, Dr. King's story as well as Malcolm axes, you've probably seen most of them. Um, they're usually Flip's work. They're, they're usually Flip's photographs. The thing that, that is pretty amazing about Flip's relationship with, Martin, doc, with Dr. King, Martin Luther King, is that he became close to the family as well. And they, they, that was a very private family, actually. And Dr. King did something he never allowed another photographer to do, and that was uh, let uh, Flip come into his home. Mm. uh and take photographs of uh inside his house of his family his children um there's a great series of photographs of dr king with his kids in the backyard of his house there in atlanta uh and their own swings and they're you know they're playing and so forth uh and to my knowledge <clears throat> there there are no other private uh, moments photographed like that uh, of dr king's and when Dr. Uh, Dr. King asked him when he won the Nobel Prize. When Dr. King won the Nobel Prize, he asked uh, Flip to come. That's when Flip came into his house and took photographs because he wanted this people to see what kind of a normal life he had. I'm talking about Dr. King did. Well, after Dr. King was assassinated, um, Coretta called. Flip was the first pho- photographer that Coretta King called and asked. She asked him to come to Atlanta immediately. And he then stayed with her and followed her all the way through uh, past the burial. So there's some iconic photographs of her at the funeral as well that Flip uh, Flip took. You know, also um, he took uh, some great photographs of, uh, and he got to be good friends with Muhammad Ali. And uh, uh, he has he eventually published a couple of really good books of. Uh, Photographs that he took of Ali as well. Uh, But, uh, you know, I should point out, being both of us associated with the University of Texas, uh, it's a King photograph, excuse me, it is a Flip Shulky photograph of King uh, that we used as the uh, model for the King statue on our campus.
0: Oh, wow, I didn't uh, know that.
1: Yeah, uh, that whole statue is based on photography. That Flip took, and Flip came for the uh, dedication, and he got uh, Martin Luther King III to come uh, to that uh, as his guest. And we had an exhibit of Flip's photographs up at the time, and uh, uh, Martin King came and looked at the exhibit with Flip. And, uh, but yeah, there's that connection. Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing.
0: Talk to me about the, um, there's two fantastic pictures of Malcolm X, one by Eddie Adams, 1964, where Malcolm X is facing the camera. And the other is um, from the Bob Gommel uh, archive. And this is of Malcolm photographing Muhammad Ali uh, at the Hampton House in Miami, Florida in 1964, after Ali has won the heavyweight championship. And it's interesting because there's a, there's a, um, A movie coming out called "One Night in Miami," about that evening right after Ali wins the heavyweight championship, and Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, and the soul singer Sam Cooke, and the NFL legend Jim Brown, um, all spend the evening together. Oh, right. Oh, that's. Um, And and so it's really extraordinary. And that that photo here in struggle. For justice really is evocative because it, it it's right around the time that that happens.
1: That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite photographs, Pennell. I have that photograph, I have a large cut a print of that photograph on a wall in my home.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. I would love this. This is a beautiful photograph.
1: Yeah. And uh, it's too bad that uh, you folks who are listening to this can't see these pictures. But uh, this is a photograph. Well, they
0: will when they get the book. Struggle for justice. Yeah, there we by go. Thank you. Thank, yeah, you. thank you. Yeah, four decades of civil rights photography. No, absolutely. Once they buy the book, and this is yeah. a great book for the holidays too. This is a great. Um, this is going to be a great gift. Uh, for well, thank you
1: for yeah. that. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you can see all these photographs if when you get the book. And yes, but uh, the thing I love, I just love the photograph. I, I mean, uh, you know, there you've got a. Uh, you know, Malcolm X uh, is taking a photograph of uh, Ali uh, in this cafe, that, and it's just crowned with people. Uh, the cafe is all behind uh, Muhammad Ali. It's, you can't really do it justice by describing it, uh, but it's, I love the photograph.
0: Yeah, he's only 22 years old here um, as as well. Um, let's talk about the the Black Panthers and some of the radical radicalism. Um, that we see in this collection too, because it's really civil rights and Black power through the collection. I was struck by the Flip Shulke um, photo of Lowndes County and um, poor rural people, Black folks in Lowndes County, Alabama, between Selma and Montgomery in the buckle of the Black Belt uh, voting for the Black Panther. And that that yes. symbol the Black Panthers coming out of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, Stokely Carmichael, and SNCC, and local organizations, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and that's what's going to inspire Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Kathleen Cleaver, uh, all these other icons that we see by the second half of the 1960s in the Black Panther Party for Self Defense. And then there's some, there's a great picture, of Stephen Shames, because I want you to talk about Stephen Shames. I've met Stephen; he's really wonderful. And uh, sort of the unofficial photographer of the Panthers. And there's a great picture of a young, young boy with the Black Panthers' People's Petition. Yes. Uh, Bobby Seale with James Baldwin. And, you know, James Baldwin has sort of made a fabulous comeback in our imagination through uh, Raoul Peck, who I know, who's a family friend, who did I Am Not Your Negro, Haitian artist and filmmaker. And... Um, the new book, Begin Again, by Eddie Baldwin, about James Baldwin as well. Um, So talk to us about James Baldwin, excuse me, talk to us about Stephen Shames. Well, Um, Steve is a,
1: yeah, Steve's from, uh, he lives in Brooklyn now. He's he's from California, but he was a student at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, in the uh, late 60s, uh, mid to late 60s. And he was involved in, uh, he was a photographer then as a student, and he was involved in the anti-war movement. Uh, he's a white photographer. He's a white person. Um, and Bobby Seale uh, came over to uh, a rally that, was, that they were having, an anti-war rally at, on a campus there at Berkeley. And they met up somehow and uh, became good friends. And Seale, uh, almost like uh, uh, really Martin Luther King, Seale was looking for a white photographer uh, to document uh, the activities of the Black Panthers. Uh, and, uh, Steve was extremely, uh, Steve Shames was very interested in that. So through Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the Panthers, as you know, um, that's how, uh, he had, uh, Steve had such great access, uh, to, to the Panthers. They let, uh, you know, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and the others let, uh, Steve come in and take photographs, uh, that other photographers didn't have access to, Of and, uh, He's uh, uh, taken most of the iconic images that we recognize today uh, of, of from the Panthers. Uh, you know that photograph of uh, Bobby Seale and James Baldwin is also a great, another I think great photo- photograph is taken in 1969. Bobby was in San Francisco County Jail, uh, and you know we had Bobby here when we when we when we got the archive. We got Steve Shames's archive was just tens of, th- actually hundreds of thousands of photographs. Um, Bobby came and did a program for us with Steve. And uh, it's clear that they are still very close friends uh, and that, Bob- and that uh, Bobby still was very proud of what Steve accomplished for them visually. Most of, a lot of Steve's photographs wound up in the Black Panther newspaper, of course. And um, I just, I'm really proud of that, of, the, of, of getting that collection to add to the, the archives that we've been building. I want to add that Steve, you know, his whole career has been documenting uh, the effects of poverty on children. And uh, he's got, uh, he's done a couple of books, uh, uh, you know, of kids, uh, uh, really young kids who, who are steeped in poverty. Um, and it's one of his issues, one of the things that he's uh, very interested in. Who was James Spider Martin? James Spider Martin. He's a, he was a little uh, short guy uh, who played football in Alabama as a kid when he was in high school. And he was as fast as uh, you know you can imagine. And they called him a spider because he, he could move quickly. And so he got his nickname, Spider. And, but uh, Spider Martin is the way he went the rest of his life. And he was a uh, really, a, he was a photographer, started as a news photographer with the Birmingham News, uh, newspaper in, in Alabama. And uh, he wanted to, co- he heard there was something going on in Selma, Alabama, and that was the, the murder that set the whole thing off. Uh, and uh, he wanted to cover it. He wanted to go down and find out what was going on and his newspaper refused. Birmingham knew that it wasn't a story. They didn't really care about, you know, uh, another black person getting killed. And uh, so he just went on his own. He just paid for his trip down to Selma and spent time in Selma. And so he was there and uh, met John Lewis uh, and got involved. uh, Really, he spent uh, a lot of time there just simply photographing uh, the Selma movement, the whole thing uh, uh, that finally led to the March on Montgomery and it's his images he was a lot of the photographers uh, came later after bloody sunday uh, mm-hmm. and photographed the march but the spider was there at bloody sunday and his most iconographic photograph is called the two-minute warning yeah, which was taken I'm at it
0: now. Yeah.
1: yeah talking is taken on march the 7th uh, uh, 1965 and it's the you know infamous photograph yeah. of the Alabama state troopers pointing at John Lewis and literally saying, you know, you have two minutes to endure at the, of course, the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, on the road. They've crossed the bridge and they've come back over the road and they're met by all of these Alabama state troopers. And a two minute warning means that he was giving uh, Lewis two minutes to get off the road to leave. Uh, I should say Lewis and all the other folks who were behind Lewis. And that's, uh, that's one of his most famous photographs. But, but uh, Spider continued to stand there and take a photograph of the, of the beatings uh, that nearly killed Lewis. Uh, actually, he was beaten so badly mm-hmm. and uh, some other folks. Uh, so a lot of the uh, photographs that you've seen of that Bloody Sunday are Spider's, if, if not all of them, to tell you the truth. And he did, of course, also photograph the, the, the Marshal Montgomery as well. Um, so his archive is really a rich visual, uh, uh, resource for studying that whole Selma story.
0: And a, b- b- one of his photos is of a young man marching and he's got the flag upside down and SOS a call for help. Um, another, which is the really, um, wonderful cover is from Charles Moore, women sing freedom songs during... The Selma to Montgomery March, nineteen sixty-five, and this is interesting because it's two black women uh, with uh, you know um, with this white woman in the center, uh, and she's got the SNCC button um, with black and white shaking hands, and that's the cover of um, "Struggle for Justice." Tell us why'd you pick this cover? I think it's a wonderful cover, but and it's it's an I, I haven't I don't recall actually seeing this photo before this
1: yeah it's not well known and uh when we were looking through the archive and uh, making decisions about by the way i w- i want to mention that uh, in doing this exhibit and identifying these photographs uh, I, it was done with uh, uh two of my staff members three of my staff members uh, sarah Soner, who's our head of exhibits uh dr sarah Soner, and uh, allison beck who's our director of special projects and ben wright who uh The communications person and Amy Bowman, who is our photographs archivist, and they deserve some of the credit, a lot of the credit, frankly, uh, for the way this looks. But uh, I love this photograph, and I I, I spotted it pretty early as a potential uh, really uh, photograph representing the exhibit, um, and we used it that way uh, to advertise the exhibit. And then when we decided, when University of Texas Press decided that they wanted to pu- actually publish a book on, on the exhibit, uh, th- this was the photograph that I really wanted, because uh, I just love the exhibit. I mean, excuse me, I love the photograph. Uh, and Charles Moore, as you said, took it. It's on the march to uh, from Selma to Montgomery. And uh, it, it just, I don't know. I mean, it, it's You know, photographs mean a lot of different things to different people, but to me, it's sort of just it, it sort of... Uh, It's it's an image of innocence in some respects, Mm -hmm. of of love and innocence in the midst of all this brutality and uh, malevolence. Uh, And it's a spirited photograph and shows uh, there's a look of determination there that it just appeals to me.
0: You know, uh, Don, I want to talk about something that I noticed, especially in the second half of the book, you know, because you just said – that backdrop of of malevolence and and um, brutality. Uh, if we go to Flip Shulkey, uh, September tenth, nineteen sixty three, the students yelling uh, epithets <laughs> at, at African American students, the white students yelling. I thought this was really remarkable, but I want to ask you about this as a piece of several other photos. So. You see these white students, and these are white women yelling, and it's really yeah. interesting when you think about Trump, the elections, white white female voters. And this know, is a look yeah,
1: yeah. This is it's 1963.
0: Hard. But then you also have a great picture from April 1965, North Carolina Grand Dragon Bob Jones and an unidentified Klansman preparing for a cross burning. Uh, then there's some contact sheets about Birmingham, but one of the things I thought was really terrific that was put in here was um, the young man who's was beaten uh, from the NAACP in Dallas, Texas, January 1951. Then it's followed by Dr. King being brutally arrested. King's funeral. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about, too, is not only just the pictures of the the urban rebellions in D.C. after King's funeral, but um, of of Canton, Mississippi. Because I write about this. I write about this in my biography of Stokely Carmichael. Uh, The violence in Canton uh, in some ways is even more brutal than the violence in Selma, but you don't have the same outpouring, right? So I just want to talk about the brutality of the period and the way in which these pictures really evoke. And they do the brutality in a panoramic way. It's from this kind of real, real um, hatred from these students, these young women uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, all the way up to, you know, the destruction of property the assassination of King, uh, the beating up of people by law enforcement. So so talk to us about like, you know, how are photos able to sort of convey that in a way that at times really words uh, cannot?
1: Well, I would argue that they also, they're, they're, still photography is probably the most powerful kind of uh, image thing that you can, including more so than words. I mean, of course we all, Uh, aware and have heard a million times about it, you know, pictures worth more than a thousand words or a million words or whatever you want to say. Uh, I think they're also much more powerful than movie uh, moving motion pictures. Uh, And it's one of the reasons why we've really just we're so uh, intent on collecting as many of these as we can because, you know, uh, an image, a still image, is something that you can set and contemplate and, and study. Um, you can look at the photograph, the uh, those motion pictures that were taken of Bloody Sunday. In fact, that's a famous photograph that Spider Martin took of the two minute warning is also on film, on motion picture film. Uh, but you know, you don't need any devices to look at uh, uh, you know to look at a still photograph it, they're they're incredibly they're so much more accessible uh, and and uh, they just you know I think they're just more valuable and there's something about our brains also uh, they're wired in such a way as to process uh, still f- images, I think uh, than than motion picture images and that's just you know there's some. Uh, studies about that, um, but uh, yeah, we wanted to obviously show um, this whole movement was, and you know, had was constantly uh, attacked, and ass- the people involved were assaulted either verbally, like the women that you're talking about, the young girls. Actually, uh, they're not that old; they look like they're teenagers, maybe a little older. Uh, screaming, God only knows what you, you can just imagine what they're saying. These awful looks on their faces, and if you saw a motion picture of that, it would just briefly shoot by you. Uh, but there's the still photograph, just is riveting. You just sit there and stare at it, and you're wondering, what are they saying? What are they thinking? Who are they? What do they do now? Are they ashamed of these of of, of this photograph? So we just wanted to make sure that um, you know all this anger and malevolence and brutality was not left out of uh, of this story that we're doing uh, that we do with this book. I don't know if that answers your question. Actually,
0: no, it does. I I, I want to you know I think these photos are just so so powerful and give us such a different. I think a, they add a richness and a texture to a period that is so often discussed, uh, but not necessarily with a lot of depth, you know. So I just think these photos are just very, very powerful in that way.
1: Well, the photograph you mentioned of the the person who had been beaten up was taken by R.C. Hickman. And that's another example of the kind of photography that, the kind of documentation that the NAACP uh, wanted R.C. to, uh, you know, to do for them.
0: Well, you know, Don, my, my last question is in the context of Black Lives Matter and how we live now and where, um, you know, we have all these dig- digital images, we have all this social media. Wh- wh- why is still photography so, so important, both struggle for justice and, you know, this four decades of civil rights photography historically, but contemporaneously, why, why, why why should we, why should we really care. And I I know why, but I want you to see (laughs) it.
1: Well, like I said earlier, they really are. We look at it as evidence. Uh, uh, They do, in fact, uh, document a moment in time. Uh, The photographs are evidence, historical evidence. They're used by historians. Uh, Like I said, they're read like diaries. They they have information on them. Uh, Historians long uh, uh, ignored and social scientists long ignored photography, um, but no more. Uh, they, they in fact photographs can now be used as uh, evidence within an act- within the text, within a narrative uh, of books, uh, and uh, so we, we, you know, they're valuable to us for teaching and research uh, because I, I can't, I personally don't think there's a better way, as we said earlier, to transmit this information more vividly than by these images. Uh, far more powerfully than we can words. And I, we live in a visual society now, even more uh, so than when these photographs were taken. So in many ways, uh, they're more easily disseminated now uh, through all the media that we have. And I um, just think that we're fortunate and lucky that we have these images still with us. That's been our business is to make sure that they're preserved and they're not thrown away. I think of those uh, shoeboxes full of photographs and rc <laughs> Uh, who had no idea that anybody would be interested uh, in that, uh, uh, they wouldn't exist now. Uh, they would have been thrown away. So I'm glad we – I'm so proud of the fact that we've done that. But I, I think they've become even more valuable, Peniel, than than they – as valuable as they were then and and getting across uh, the misery that uh, the, this racial situation – uh, was was involved in the, uh, in the 50s and 60s. I think they're even more powerful now. And God knows we thought we were going to be making, this is, was going to be an old story uh, in the 50s and 60s by the time we got to this point in mm-hmm. history. Uh, but if anything, these photographs are even more important for that reason.
0: And finally, um, is the Briscoe Center going to do more of this in terms of the exhibits because I know the exhibit was up for I guess almost an 18-month period. Uh, are, are there going to be any future plans
1: if we can ever get through the COVID crisis, you know, we are, our, our, as you know, our building's closed and it's been closed since last March. And uh, uh, we're hoping that uh, we can get our uh, building reopened and the exhibits up. Yeah. But it's our, our, ex- the exhibits that we show at the Briscoe Center uh, are all to show off um, the resources that we have for people to, for teachers and researchers to use. We want people to know what we have and also to give people ideas about what they can write about, you know, wh- what kind of things we have that they can use for their own research. But, yeah, we that's an integral part of our program. We we definitely plan to keep on doing it. And we, as you may know, we did another book that came out uh, approximately the same time as this one called Flash of Light, Wall of Fire, uh, which is an archive I acquired out of Japan. Uh, about the, it's an archive of f- photographs. They were taken by Japanese photographers after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And most of the photographs have never been uh, published. They were suppressed by the Japanese government and by the American government. And so we're going to, that's going to be our next exhibit is an exhibit of those photographs. Uh, They're pretty horrific, actually, but there's a point to that. And uh, we're going to try to open that if the crisis has passed us for the 76th anniversary of the bombings uh, this coming August in 2021. So we're going to continue to do this kind of work.
0: Oh, that's great, and we're looking—we're looking forward to it to see it both in person. But everyone now has a chance to get this book, *Struggle for Justice: Four Decades of Civil Rights Photography*. We've been having a great conversation with Don Carlton, Dr. Don Carlton, who's the executive director of the Briscoe Center for American History and the J.R. Parton Chair in the Archives of American History at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of eleven books and the executive producer of two PBS documentaries. But the latest book, which everyone should pick up, makes a great holiday gift. I have mine here, Struggle for Justice, Four Decades of Civil Rights Photography. Don, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, this was delightful. I appreciate it, Panel, very much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter, at Peniel Joseph, that's P-E-N-I-E-L, J-O-S-E-P-H and our website csrd.lbj.utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.